open up to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. If you don't have a Bible, these folks walking down the row will give you one. Isaiah 53. Don't throw it at them. Isaiah 53. And while you're holding your place in Isaiah 53, would you also do me the privilege of going to John 19? So you have Isaiah 53, and then John is in the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John is the fourth gospel. Go to chapter 19. Hold your place there while you also keep your place in Isaiah 53. John 19, Isaiah 53. Now, we've been going through this fourth servant song as we've been going through the, the book of Isaiah. This is the fourth and final servant song. It's dealing with the Messiah. There's five three-verse stanzas. We've been covering three verses at a time. Uh, this will be the last study of, of Isaiah 53. Um, and I want to conclude with it, and then we'll, we'll move on to another chapter of Isaiah. But I wanted to focus this morning on Isaiah 53, verses 7, 8, and 9. And then I want to take you to uh, John 19, and I'll explain it to you um, as we, we come upon it. But with that being said, would you please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord? For those of you who wonder why we stand, I've, I, I say it a lot, uh, we stand for the word of God. One thing we honor, the other we tolerate. So you stand for the word of God, you sit for the word of the teacher, right? One is holy, eternal in the heavens, and the other is three bucks, and, and, and my teaching will get you a cup of coffee. Okay, that didn't work. So Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 9. The scripture reads, He was oppressed... And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Twice it's repeated. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, meaning he didn't have any children. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Now let's turn to John 19. And we're going to be at the end of the chapter, starting with verse 38. After this, those two words just simply mean after the crucifixion, after everything that was prophesied 700 years earlier, after all of it had come to fruition and taken place, after the Via Dolorosa, the cat of nine tails, the crown of thorns, the spear in his thigh, the nails in his hands, feet, the beatings, the beard being pulled out of his face. After this, you know, you don't miss those two words. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus, and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. Lord, as we examine these two passages of Scripture, one in the light of the other, Holy Spirit, we ask that you lead us into all truth and that we would completely understand the significance of this passage of Isaiah 53 through the illumination of John 19. And Lord, I pray that you administer to every heart that what Joseph of Arimathea did and what we're called to do, they're one and the same. And so, Lord, I pray that you would minister, you touch lives, and I pray that you'd bless hearts, heal wounds. And, Lord, we commit all this into your care, and we thank you for your tender love. As a wonderful Father, we just praise you and thank you. And, Jesus, for such an amazing sacrifice as our Messiah, our Savior, what you did on our account, we're so grateful. We love you. May you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please be seated. I can't teach these three verses without context. And I know you've heard it, but it, 
serves us greatly to revisit it. Join with me as we pick up in chapter 52 of Isaiah at the beginning of this fourth servant song in verse 13. Follow along with me as we read it in its entirety. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage, his face was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. And when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressor. We saw last week, as that was recited, and those verses were read to Jews that are in Israel, and read by a Messianic Jew. And folks were seeing that, and this is a passage of scripture that's no longer read in the synagogues in the Jewish community because it's so confusing because they're waiting for a Messiah, but here the Messiah has to die. Here the Messiah is depicted as suffering. Here the Messiah is dying for the sins of individuals. And this is a tough one. And, And as you would go through this and you would hear of Jesus being the Messiah, being from the tribe or the lineage of David, from the family of David, and you go through his lineage through Matthew, and you go through Luke, and you, you trace this from Mary and Joseph's side, and they both agree that this is from the lineage of David, the son of David. As all this is described, and now in 70 AD, the records are destroyed. They, they can't come up with another Messiah. There's no way. And yet here you see this so clearly depicted in those that would be hearing it on the streets of Jerusalem or throughout the streets of Israel, all of a sudden realize this is a passage of scripture describing the Messiah written 700 years before Christ would be crucified written hundreds of years before Psalm 22 that says my hands have been pierced. My feet have been pierced reading in, in other passages of Isaiah that his beard would be pulled out of his face. And as we see in, in chapter 52, that he would, his visage, his face would be marred than any other man, any other person, his body, the same, what they would do to him. And as we, we read through this and we see the account, it's easy to just have your cup of coffee in the morning with your, your Bible study and, and reading this and just become somewhat immune to the significance of it. Where over and over again, he's crucified, he's, he's, he's beaten, he's marred for what purpose? For our iniquities. 
And we would have to come face to face with the fact that we need a Savior and that He is it. And through this passage of Scripture, as we've been reading in the past weeks, we've all been, I pray, ministered to. I know I have. And, and as we get to this passage of the fourth servant song, these three verses in this stanza, this is the picture of the silent servant. Twice, as we had, have seen in our reading, he opened not his mouth. He opened not his mouth. You can read past that and not think much of it. But it's fascinating how they put this together and how the Lord speaking to Isaiah and moving his hand to write this messianic prophecy 700 years before it would take place. He says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. You know, when we saw the picture of Hollywood's depiction of the lashing that Christ received from the Roman guards, as visually awful as that was, it paled in comparison to what he endured. They did wrap you around a post so that your back would be stretched. They did accurately depict the cat of nine tails with the leather straps flat that would be wet so they would stick upon impact on the back. And they, they rightfully depicted the glass and metal shards at the tip so that when the leather straps would hit, they'd stick, the metal shards would dig, and then it would rip out the flesh. And the purpose that, that I didn't see depicted in the movie, although I've watched it many years ago and don't want to revisit it, the one thing that we don't understand is the fact why the Roman soldiers would do this to somebody. They wanted to find who was complicit in the crime that they were being accused of. And with this punishment of lashing, they would wait for the, the person to spill the beans and give up the others that were complicit. And as they whipped him, I was complicit. And he didn't say my name. He was silent. He didn't give me up. He didn't give you up. They hit him again. And when they'd hit him, pull that up. Clearly depicted by countless historians, Jewish and Roman the ribs, the bones would be exposed and oftentimes the bowels even from the back. To endure that. Waiting for him to give up an accomplice and he said nothing about you or me. He just was silent. They brought him before every leader, every political leader. And with the exception of once being before, I think it was Pilate when he said, I, I, I compel you by God Almighty, and you are under oath, are you the king of the Jews? The only time he spoke was so not to bring blasphemy to his father. He said, it is as you say, I am the king of the Jews. And then the only time he spoke, he never spoke to give you or me up. He only spoke under oath. Before others, they would ridicule and mock him and ask him questions, and he would stand there silent. In other accounts... And this is, to me, one of the most com compelling visits in Israel. And for those of you who haven't been, you need to go. We go down into the bowels of Jerusalem, underneath all the different levels of civilization, till we come to an excavation of the Antonio Fortress. And there, underneath the streets of a bustling Jerusalem, there is the Antonio Fortress, these huge blocks of granite, which was the cardio and the main drag. And there is... There is this Antonio Fortress. You come into this place. We all gather around. There's some, some benches and then a, a railing seemingly obscure just there over a piece of granite. We gather around and it's there that we read the passage of scripture where the Romans brought him into the fortress 
And they had his hands tied behind his back and they put a purple robe on him. They put a staff in his hands and they jammed in this crown of thorns, this Middle Eastern plant, uh, thorns three inches long, and they jammed it into his skull. And they began to play a game called the King's Game. It was very popular in Roman times, played by the soldiers, the centurions, this King's Game. And they began to have a living game piece, so to speak. And as they would sucker punch him and say, prophesy who hit you. And they began to mock him as the king of the Jews. As his back is being bloodied and his his face is swollen and they've pulled his beard out of his face, marred his visage more than any man. They played this game. Reading that in this location, we take a, a bottle of water. As everyone is silent, similar to the room now thinking what our Messiah endured for our sake because he never gave our name up. And you take this water and you pour it over the granite. And lo and behold, the relief of this king's game rises in the granite. And you see right there, more than likely, this is where that game was played. Like now, you could hear a pin drop. To me, it's one of those places in Israel that pierces my heart brings me into this place of connection with the Lord that I never realized. The fact that he was silent. He never gave me up. When Isaiah reemphasizes it by repeating it, he equates Christ's silence with a lamb. A lamb going to the slaughter, a sheep before it shears. When you take cattle to the auction, or excuse me, when you take cattle to the slaughter, they moo and they low. When you take pigs, they squeal and they oink. But when you take a sheep, you take a lamb, they're silent. Even when you bring the knife to their jugular to cut them, they say nothing. People say it's because they're stupid. Tell me another animal equated with the Lord that he would put into scripture in such a profound way. They're gentle. They're sacrificial. They say nothing. He was silent. Even Job said, God, why? Job complained. Hezekiah complained. Paul, every time we face some sort of travesty, some sort of persecution, some sort of trial, we let him know. I've got questions for you. Where are you? Why is this happening? But not the Lord. He was silent. Silent. We commend our lives to the Lord. We say, I will follow you. I will go anywhere. I will do anything. You've given me your life. I give you mine. And the minute we are, we are hit with something, we, we squeal and whine like a pig. Why? And yet, The Bible says that we have been crucified. We're dead. Christ is alive. I didn't come to church as a a teenager. I didn't come to church as a young man looking to improve myself. I didn't come looking to find people like me. I came to a church because I was sick of me. I lived with me. I know who I am. I don't like seeing myself in the mirror. I didn't like what I was doing. I didn't like deception, lies, being absolutely imprisoned to every whim, every blowing of the wind. I couldn't say no. I wanted help. I wanted freedom. I I wanted deliverance. Only to realize that the, the thing that I wanted was less of me and more of him. And every time he would come to say, Rob, this is my will. I would fight him. I would squeal. I would whine. I would moo. Never silent. As the years progress, my voice is still there, but it's not as loud. There are times where I return to just being all me. And the Lord 
wants us to know that we are silent. We're dead. You can't insult a dead man. You can't insult somebody who, I mean, I've done funerals. I've seen wakes. I've seen bodies and people coming up and saying, You're, this suit is ugly and you are, the makeup is awful. And you, you push them. They say nothing. They say nothing. And Christ said to all who would listen, he said, no man takes my life. I willingly give it. This is an act of my will. I lay it down. I give it. I know what I'm set to do. And the scripture that we studied previous, his face was set like a flint. And as he endured the mockings and he endured the shame and he endured the whipping and he endured the piercing and he endured the crown of thorns and, and all the beatings and, and the spittle and the ridicule and the mocking as he endured it all. He said nothing. But putting it into perspective. The scripture says he is our atonement. Psalm 22 said he had to be pierced. He had to die for the remission of our sins. He would be crucified. And what that hits me so deeply is, As he's enduring this lashing of the Romans, ripping his back apart, exposing his bones, his intestines, his organs. As he's in the Antonio Fortress being beaten and mocked, bleeding out. When everyone has had their way, pulled that beard out. They level on him this cross, the one upon which he's to die that had been prophesied hundreds of years before, that he would go to die for the sins of the many. If he had died with the lashings, there would be no atonement. By an act of the will, he held it all together. As his blood's pouring out, his back is shredded. He has to purpose and hold it together. He's got to get through all of it. And as they put this cross on him and he's walking up the Via Dolorosa to the Mount of Golgotha. Everyone is chiming in and having a field day. He collapses under the weight of the cross. Simon the Cyrene is ordered to pick it up. Still excruciatingly walking as he gets to the top by a sheer act of will, knowing that he has to die there when he would have liked to have died way back there. But the scripture says his face was set like a flint. But more importantly, it says because of the joy that was set before him, he endured it. The joy, you and me, our sins being atoned for, our lives being set free. The life of Christ being imputed to us. Our sins being cleansed. Our life being restored. Our hope being renewed. His face set like a flint. Sheer act of the will going up that mountain. And as he gets there being manhandled and mocked and beaten. They throw him down onto the ground onto this cross. Still not atoned. The pain and the sheer agony of that open flesh being thrown to that board and all the dirt being lodged inside every wound and every crevice. These long spikes being pierced through his wrists, feet, excruciating pain, holding on, sheer act of the will, no blood remaining. Sweating as though were drops of blood because of the intensity of the pain. When Peter himself was warming himself by a fire because it was freezing cold, he's sweating, capillaries are bursting. Because of me and you. Sheer act of the will, silent. As they roughly lift this cross and it falls into the hole and shakes and pulls on those nails. As he begins to have to pull himself up to breathe. Waiting for the time prophesied, waiting for that moment, waiting for that Passover that he would be the lamb slain on that day, that time, that moment, 
holding on, uttering simple words, seven of the last phrases, one in particular caring for his mother saying, John, behold your mother, mother, behold your son, take care of her, John. As he hears them mocking, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As the, as the sun begins to come to its conclusion and the time is drawing near, as his heart is just holding on. And I think of this because my mother's no Jesus, but she was precious to me. Her lungs had collapsed. Everything had fallen apart. And she was holding on to reconcile with people, gasping for breath, waiting for their arrival. A sheer act of the will to impart that to somebody before she passed, waiting for her husband of over 50 years to come who, who had Alzheimer's, waiting to, to see him one last time. That's an act of the will. His act was for you and me, marred more than any human being, suffering more than anyone has ever known. And then crying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And the scriptures say that he died for our sins. I can just think of my own. There on that cross, bleeding out on behalf of my sins alone and the, the weight of that. And I've lived with me for 54 years. And to recount those and the ones just this day alone and the things that I've thought in secret and the thing. The vileness of that being placed on him, him taking my issues onto himself. And then exponentially in the room, we think ourselves righteous. There's none. How many times a day does a good man fail to be perfect? A good woman failed to be perfect. And then add that through the course of history, past, present, and future, leveled on him. Where he'd say, Father, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I remember my daughter Molly when she had cut her head as a little girl and they had to have stitches and she was scared to death. And I had to hold her head because they couldn't, they couldn't strap it with a Velcro. And I had to hold her while the doctor sewed her up and she's screaming, Daddy, 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 how can you let them do this to me? As they were sewing her head, and I, I, it was breaking my heart, but I wouldn't let her go. And as the son is crying out to the father, and he won't let go, he will, it, it pleases him. It pleased me to know that she's going to be okay. She doesn't understand my heart's breaking, but it pleased me to know she was going to be all right. And there the father, watching his son cry out, where are you? And then the last word, one word in the Greek, three in the English, the last, to tell us die. He asked for his mouth to be moistened so that he could loosen his tongue in the dehydration. To say that word in the Greek, to tell us die, sticks to the roof of your mouth. And a swollen tongue makes it difficult. And moistening his mouth, he uttered it, to tell us die. It's the same thing they put across. A mortgage that's been paid in full. It's the same thing that's said in the English language, it is finished. The atonement is complete. And there he gave up his spirit. Silent. Save but for the words that ministered to us as we reflect on that day. But what amazes me is verse 9, and I want to conclude with this. Verse 9 of Isaiah 53. They made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Why? Because he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He died in the presence of two thieves both who mocked him and one who came to declare him the Messiah. The last act of salvation that Jesus made to a man, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Some of his final words of the seven. 
And here he died amongst thieves with the poor on Golgotha, but buried with the rich. You can read that and move on and not remember it, but that's why we visit John 19. After this, after that brutal depiction of what we've just endured and all the things that we've revisited, there is his lifeless corpse hanging from the two nails, his legs bent out awkwardly as the nails holding his feet, his body lifeless as he's given up his spirit, as he said, to tell us that. And a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus Christ, just like those who call upon the name of the Lord, those who profess themselves to be Christians, just like Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple of Jesus. But Joseph, similar to many of us, was a secret disciple. They didn't know at his place of work he was a Christian. They didn't know at his family that he was a Christian. They didn't know in particular public areas that he was a Christian. If he's being put on trial for being a Christian, there wouldn't be a lot of evidence to convict him of such. But he was secretly a disciple of Christ. He was moved by these things. He would, he would contend in the Sanhedrin for Christ. He would say, you, you're, you're going to kill a just man. And along with Joseph of Arimathea, who was a Sanhedrin, and he was, he was not just a just man, the, the scriptures declare that he's a counselor, but he was an honorable counselor. There were probably only 14 in the history of Israel, and he's one of them. And Joseph of Arimathea's name is listed in all four gospel accounts. But we only find Nicodemus in the book of John. For fear of the Jews, he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. Pilate, there having ruled Joseph of Arimathea comes to him and says, I want the body of Jesus. I can imagine Pilate, Joseph, you are the third richest man in all of Israel. You're in the Sanhedrin. You, you have a position of authority in the community. You do this. You will be a penny looking for change. You will lose everything. No one will do business with you. Don't do this. I want the body of Jesus. You're going to be unclean. You won't participate in the Passover. You will be noted. Everyone will ridicule you. You won't be with the Sanhedrin. They, they, will, they will recognize what you've done. This is, this is social suicide. I want the body of Jesus. Fine. He's yours. If this is the mess you want to make, take the bloodied body. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. Nicodemus, this is where we get John chapter 3, for God so loved the world. This is the conversation that you must be born again. This is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus at night. Nicodemus was just as much of a secret follower as Joseph was. And finally, Nicodemus seeing Joseph's willingness to step forward in front of Pilate and to stand publicly as a disciple of Christ says, I'm with you. And the two of them together go and take this body of Jesus. They bring the myrrh and the aloes, hundred pounds. They took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with spices and customs as a Jew is to bury in the place where he was crucified. There was a garden and in the garden, there was a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. The tomb was nearby the mountain. This is uh, Gordon's Calvary. It's one of my favorite places to go on our trip to Israel. Um, in the spring, it's blossomed like this, like it would be when we're there in May. It's just beautiful. It's, it's the home of a very wealthy man. It has a wine press. It's got a, uh, an olive press. It's got a huge cistern that was hewn out of the rock, which could only be done by a wealthy man. You had no pneumatic tools. There's a tomb that was built there, not completely finished. One tomb for a child, another for a mother. And, and yet nothing had been completed there. But one section for, for the, 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 the patriarch of the home was completed. And you look at the, the, the majesty of this area and right, if you're facing this over to the right, now they've put a mosque there, is what they used to call Golgotha. Right near the, the, the purported area. They've put a mosque there. <laughs> you, you have to speak over it. And they do it at all the times of the Christian meeting. And, and here we take communion. 
We walk into this tomb, and every time I've been in there, it's empty. You see the stone. They found this in the excavation. There's the stone, massive and rolled away. And they believe this to be the home of a very rich man. Now, if this is where Christ was buried, if this is where he was resurrected, I cannot tell you. There are many denominations that conclude that this, the site of the Holy Sepulcher, is where Christ was buried and resurrected and on and on. It's an interesting place. You go into the door on the left, and as you go in, I'll show you in a moment, it's ornate, and, and it's run by six different orthodoxies, the Armenian Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, uh, you've got Catholics, they're all, they're all claiming a portion of this property as their own. And it was split by an Islamic leader at one point and where he had divided it that they would all get together. And, and these Christian denominations can't even agree. That's why I have that ladder there circled. You can see the ladder over to the left and there it is increased. That's been there for 300 years because they can't agree on if it's allowed to be moved or it must stay. I kid you not. And they argue so much that the door must be opened every day by a Muslim. There's the ladder. And that is not a modern picture. This is the tomb of the Holy Sepulcher. You go in and they're genuflecting and there's incense burning and people are kissing the floor and you can't go here without permission of there and there without permission of here. And, and it's an interesting location. And, and they, they, they look for the money. and the, You go into Gordon's Calvary and it's just one of the most peaceful places you've been. We conclude our trip at Gordon's Calvary with communion as a, a body of believers. And I'm, I'm not to diminish that for my Catholic brothers and sisters or the Russian Orthodox or the Armenian Orthodox. I, I, I'm not diminishing it. I'm simply saying... I'm simply saying the tomb itself was the place of a wealthy man. And here, Joseph of Arimathea was given permission by Pilate to take the body. And as he took the body, I want to show you what transpires. It's fascinating. They said that as he was on the cross, historians declare that Joseph wrapped his arms in linen so that when the nails would be removed, the body wouldn't fall. I remember when I was at breakfast with Kevin yesterday, and the waitress said she was from Woodland Hills and she went to El Camino, and I had commented about Bob Gainsley, my friend, who had died of cancer. And I remember when I was taking his body, he was so heavy. We were lifting him onto the gurney and no help from Bob. Can't get a grip. They don't hold. Easy to drop, easy to, and we were so careful and took those linens and wrapped them tight and lifted together. And the care with which the morticians worked with his body. I could Envision Joseph of Arimathea taking the body of Christ in such a delicate manner, lowering him with these linens as they pull his body off the cross. Fascinatingly, when Joseph of Arimathea, Sanhedrin, a Jew, gets permission from Pilate to take the body, he is no longer permitted to participate in the greatest Jewish holiday of Passover because he is now unclean. And it doesn't matter. Not only will he not be able to participate, he will now be ostracized from the entire community because he's embraced what they consider to be a false messiah. His world is over. And yet with great tenderness. This is a Jewish burial. As it says in the passage in John 19, it was the custom. This is the custom of the Jews to bury. They do it with these linen strips. The tahara, which is a ritual cleansing of the dead, tahrahim, the dressing the body according to the ritual law. These are the cornerstones of Jewish burial performed by the Shevra Kaddish, which is a holy society 
a group of trained volunteers who in traditional Jewish communities prepare the dead and support the mourners through the prescribed grieving process. If it's a man's body, it's men. If it's a woman's body, it's women. And, and they are a sacred society because it is a great act of selflessness to be considered unclean to participate in the preparation of the body for the family itself. Selfless manner. And Joseph is doing this. Dressing the body according to the ritual law, the tahrahim, using those linens. This is a picture of it. In silence, the members of this one area that I'd gotten the, the picture of it, Temple Beth El and Aptos, begin their work carefully cleaning the body, slowly pouring water over it while saying the ritual words, lovingly wrapping it in a clean white shroud, reverently placing it finally into a simple pine coffin. The only sounds are the dripping of water. And the women's whispered prayers. One woman in particular recounted this, this takrahim, this, this burial practice of her father. She was behind this, the curtain as she heard the Jewish men preparing her father, and her last name was Cohen, preparing her father for burial. And in a custom, as it says in John 19, the custom of the Jews to bury, they followed this ancient tradition. And she heard them from behind the curtain saying, Mr. Cohen, speaking to the body, Mr. Cohen, we're going to comb your hair now. Mr. Cohen, we are going to wash your face now. And each action they would take, they would speak to this person with tenderness, and people were praying as the body was being prepared, being cleansed, being loved and honored. So when you, you see in the gospel accounts of Joseph of Arimathea, and one of it says they washed the body, you don't miss that. You don't skip over it. They put him on the ritual stone with tender care. They said, Jesus, we're going to remove these thorns from your brow. Jesus, we are going to wash the wounds on your head now. We're going to clean your hair and your face. Jesus, we're going to clean the wound in your side, the wounds in your hand, the wound on your beard and your face. We're going to wash the dirt and the spit from you now. From your feet. Jesus, we're going to roll you over now. You can imagine the gasp as he beheld the misery of what was done to him. Imagine as they're doing this with tenderness and love. Jesus, we're going, going to remove the dirt from these wounds. These verses would come to mind as Sanhedrin, knowing scripture, his visage was marred more than any man. We are going to try to care for your face, your visage, and the beatings. We're going to clean this. As they wa wash the wounds, speaking to the Lord in a tenderness, they can imagine they've pierced my hands and feet, Psalm 22. They get to Isaiah 53 as they roll his body over and they see it. By his stripes, we've been healed. We're going to wash these now. He was wounded for our transgressions. They did this because of me. Tenderly love this man. The Takrahim, the Tahura. They prepare his body with the aloes, the strips of linen. They carry him. They do this for a dead Jesus. They bring him to the tomb, his own. 
the tomb of a rich man. They lay him in the tomb. They roll the stone. Their hearts breaking. Their clothes, their lives defiled. Passover, not an option. Their reputation in the community finished. His wealth is gone. His title is destroyed. He and Nicodemus are finished. As they roll that stone, this is the conclusion of not only this life, but my own. And then an earthquake. The veil is torn from the top to the bottom. Light shines all around. The the guards are as dead men. The tomb is empty. He's resurrected. You can imagine Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus. They had a perspective that resurrection Sunday that no one else had. They got to see the wounds that they had cleansed, the body that they had tenderly loved. They got to see into the eyes that were cold and lifeless, alive and piercing their soul. The resurrection of the joy of which Christ had brought into their life and to countless others because he had paid that price of the atonement. And they had laid it all on the line and they could say he is alive. Their lives would never be the same. The Roman calendar, which is our Christian calendar, August 3rd, interestingly enough, is celebrated St. Nicodemus of Coffer Gamelia or Gamelio. Nicodemus of Coffer Gamelio. You think, what is that? Josephus and other historians say that Joseph of Arimathea being the third wealthiest man whose daughter's wedding was the most extravagant in all of Jerusalem, all of Israel. Later, they would be found after testifying and professing faith in Christ that his daughter, who was, had experienced the most lavish wedding, was digging through the stalls to find barley to feed upon because they had lost everything. Nicodemus' home... Coffer is, is, means home, the home of Gamaliel. We know him in the book of Acts. He said, if this is of the Lord, it will flourish. If it isn't, it will be destroyed. He never professed faith, but he was friends with Nicodemus. He was friends with Joseph of Arimathea. And he said, you come live with me. And he cared for them to the end of their life. They lost everything. We think March 17th is St. Patrick's Day, but it is not. You see, it used to be the day of Joseph of Arimathea, St. Joseph of Arimathea, celebrated in this town in England called Glastonbury. It's a cathedral that is destroyed in a postmodern England. Christianity is in a death spiral. It was here that St. Joseph of Arimathea, where they call him St. Joseph of Glastonbury, would bring this staff and put it into the ground. The staff would blossom and it would create this crown of thorns that was declared that he had pulled this out of Jesus' head as he was preparing his body for the ritual. This thornberry tree ended up taking root in England. It's a Middle Eastern Mediterranean plant that that blossoms in England and blossoms two times a year, once at Christmas and once at Easter. It's a 2,000-year-old tree celebrated, even though the cathedral is destroyed, and there in the death spiral of England's Christianity and postmodern Christendom, they're more impressed with trees and and the sanctuaries are empty, and someone comes along and cuts the tree apart. And it is gone. 2011 destroyed. And you know what's amazing to me? You think, oh, death. If we could have Joseph of Arimathea come and minister to us right now and speak to us, many of you would say, third wealthiest man in Jerusalem. How do I make money? How do we make this church wealthy? How do I accomplish financial security? Joseph, tell me. Joseph would look and say, what are you talking about? I want to tell you about my Jesus' wrists and his head and his back, side. I want to tell you about his love for me, the way he changed my life. 
It's declared that Joseph was the one who brought Christianity to Britain. Many of you are descendants from Western European heritage, and that gospel that came through this Victorian era and spread throughout the world is a direct result of the churches established by what he probably did. He wouldn't talk to you of wealth. He'd talk to you about obedience, adoration, sacrifice, love. Talk to you about the eyes of the Lord and how it pierced his heart and how it moved him not out of obligation, but adoration. He would say to you this, if you asked him the question, what, uh, we did what we did for a dead Jesus, but you have a risen Jesus. Two words. It was the beginning of John 19 that we read. Two words. After this. The message is over. We've examined Isaiah 53. We've seen pictures. We've been moved. We've been touched. After this. After this what? After this what, disciple of Jesus? After this what? What bold thing will you do? After this. I find myself more like a cow or a pig than I do a lamb. Every little issue I'm whining about or mooing. Hmm. I want to live in such a way that I would be willing to do for Christ. What Joseph and Nicodemus did. They did that for a dead Jesus. Our God is alive. I, I say this as we pray. Kevin and I had a great time and we drove over and I showed him the building and I had, my heart was so moved. I watched all these, these men and ladies and the men more at that time, but the ladies earlier, I, I, I watched them serving on a Saturday. Many of them tradesmen who work countless hours, exhausting hours, all there pouring their heart into the work waiting to touch that community. I'm thinking, we're going to move in there and we'll be reviled and they'll be upset and, and there'll be persecution and all these things. And everyone doing what they were doing were doing it because they love them. They haven't even met them yet and they're preparing a place for them. And I, I, I left there, and I, I don't know if I reflected it to Kevin, but I left there thinking, what a precious fellowship of believers. I mean, it really is a church filled with folks like Joseph of Arimathea. I, I just was thanking the Lord this morning for the privilege to be the pastor of such a precious fellowship. And I want you to be encouraged by this because you do live in such a way as to serve a risen Savior. And may God continue to strengthen you and bless you and encourage you And I'll tell you what, we have been given this gift. And as a body of believers, we're going to go and give this gift away. We're going to be used to magnify the Lord.